This morning's scripture, Matthew, the 28th chapter, the first 15 verses. With this one, we'll have covered three of the four Gospels. We covered John and Mark this morning in sunrise. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole them while away, while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we come to you thankful for the most important story in all of human history. We thank you that we get to celebrate it this morning. And Father, it is our prayer this morning that you would speak to our hearts and minds anew. That those that do not know you may come to know you in a saving way. Come to know you as Lord and Savior of their lives. And Father, I pray that the words I speak be not mine, but be those of your Spirit. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So we gather this morning to celebrate the most important event in all of human history. Bar none. Nothing is more important to mankind than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the very foundation of Christianity. It is why we gather on Sunday morning instead of Saturday. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope. None. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and we're all still in our sins. That's how important the resurrection of Jesus is. Without that, there is no sacrifice for our sins. Unfortunately, there are many, I use the term very loosely, Christians, quote unquote, that will say that they believe in God, but they just can't go the extra step to believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus. They just can't get over that hump. 
And with that mindset, then what is the use? Why are they wasting their times? Why do we waste our times even in here? He is the first born of the brethren to be raised. And without that, we will not. What good is Christianity if there is no resurrection from the dead? As Paul said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Eternal life is the greatest hope that we have. It is the hope of all mankind. But without a resurrection from the dead, there is no future. There is no hope. There's nothing but nothing. That's right. There's there's nothing but nothing. As Paul said, if there is no resurrection, then our preaching is in vain and we are most to be pitied. People will say, well, that doesn't make logical sense, that being the resurrection, doesn't make logical sense with my mind. I can't grasp on a resurrected life. It just doesn't, I don't see it, right? I don't see it happen. I would counter to you that the creation of life in itself is something that does not make logical sense in our minds. We don't see it, we can't fathom it. And yet somehow society wants to try to encourage us to think that it just happened. How illogical is that? That it just happened. God created this world with certain laws, laws of nature. And unfortunately, we get so used to those that we believe that's all there is. And we refuse to believe that anything ever happens outside of those laws. That's what a miracle is, right? When something happens outside of what we perceive to be the laws of nature. But we become so adept in fitting into this world and in this sphere where there are certain laws. If I drop this pin, it's going to fall to the floor. That we can't see beyond it. But I will tell you that creation itself falls outside of the laws of nature. To say that it just happened is way more contrary to the laws of nature than saying that some being, some creator, some intelligent designer created life. And that's what it all boils down to as we gather here this morning. Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There's two prerequisites to salvation, right? We're going to come full circle back to the first one at the end of this message. Right now, we're going to focus on that second one. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. So, those that say, I cannot... Go to the extent of believing that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. Have no salvation. That's why I quote unquote Christianized him. That is a prerequisite to eternal life. 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Here we are this morning celebrating that resurrection. I want those of you that grapple with this second prerequisite, pay special attention this morning because the message is focused toward you. I want you to try to put aside distractions because it's very easy, and I see it. It's very easy to find a distraction and get glued to it so you don't have to listen to me. I've been in those seats. I know how it works. I've played the game. We all like a distraction so we can ignore what God's wanting us to hear. It's very easy to do. This may be very well the most important time in the rest of your eternity. So I want you to focus upon this. Throughout the years since the resurrection, people have tried in many ways to explain it away. And they've made some very pathetic attempts, if I may say so. There are those who believe that Jesus wasn't really dead. That he got taken down off the cross prematurely, which defies all logic. Roman soldiers did not work this way, okay? They knew how to kill. And they knew how to do it very efficiently and wonderfully, if you'll use that term. But they were very good at what they did. And they were in charge of the crucifixion. Nonetheless, they believed that Jesus was taken down from the, from the cross prematurely. Even with a spear in his side and all the bleeding and everything else. So he was put in the tomb and he was still alive. He was put in the tomb. The stone was rolled over. 75 pounds of spices were placed on him. And yet somehow after three days of no, no water, no food, 75 pounds of spices, bleeding profusely, he manages to come back to life on his own. He just kind of wakes up. Roll the stone away, overwhelm the soldiers that are outside guarding the place, appear to his disciples, and convince them that he rose from the dead. That is not a logical argument. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. There are those that believe it was all some sort of illusion. That they wanted so hard to believe that Jesus rose from the dead that they caused themselves to see Jesus. They actually talked themselves into some sort of frenzy where they, they saw the resurrection, resurrected Christ. Now, there are all kinds of problems with this theory. First, and I want you to remember this because it's so important to remember as we go through this entire story this morning. The disciples were ignorant of this whole resurrection idea. They didn't understand it. They didn't know that he was going to be resurrected. They had no idea what was going on. They were clueless. Looking back in retrospect, it's easy for us to figure it out. They didn't have an idea. They had no idea what was going to happen. Second, real easy to disprove that, right? Where's the body? If this is all an illusion, it's easy to disprove. Move that stone, pull out that body, here he is. 
But you know what? For over 2,000 years, nobody has ever been able to show us his body. And they never will. Because he's alive. Because he is risen. There are many different attempts to explain the resurrection. We know that he actually had a body. But the Bible tells us he was able to walk through doors. We know that Thomas touched his side and and touched his hand. We know that he ate broiled fish. I want to ask him about his taste someday. But he was actually able to eat as you and I are able to eat. Some attempts to explain the resurrection are, are better than others. But the best attempt is the one that we're going to look at this morning. It was actually contrived or given by the enemies of Jesus. And we're going to examine it in detail to demonstrate how it basically confirms the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 1, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was actually a group of ladies going to the tomb. And they were going to the tomb to care for his body. And Mark tells us they were talking amongst themselves how they were going to actually get the stone rolled away so they could go in to care for his body properly. But it didn't stop them. They were still going. It demonstrated the beautiful love of the ladies of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. Notice there was a great earthquake, but that statement, great earthquake, is actually connected to the next statement with the word for. And you can interchange the word for and the word because here. So this great earthquake was caused by the descending of the angel. The angel entering earth caused a great earthquake. He descended from heaven and rolled back the stone and plopped on it. Now don't get confused. He didn't roll back the stone to let Jesus out. He rolled back the stone to let the women in. Jesus was already gone. He walked through the stone. The same way we see him later on walk through walls, through doors. He just appears in the middle. So the stone's for our benefit, not Jesus's. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The angel was reflecting and radiating the glory of God. Much the same way Moses radiated and reflected the glory of God. So All the beauty and splendor and light and white and purity that the angels demonstrate is not theirs. It's a reflection of God's. And for fear of this angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. So the guards saw the angel, and they were terrified. 
They were terrified to the point that they lost consciousness. It's a very frightening sight, and I'm going to pick up this theme again in a few verses. But they were absolutely terrified to the point that they lost consciousness. And yet the angel told the women, do not be afraid. Two separate people here, terrified. He tells one, do not be afraid. As to the unbelievers, he doesn't say anything. Then the angel tells the women, he's not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. So the angel tells the rest of the women that Jesus is not there. And the other gospels will tell us that Mary actually started back. She was already on her way back. And she was very concerned. And she actually tells Peter and John that someone has stolen Jesus. That was her first inclination because the stones rolled away and the tomb's empty. And she goes into a panic. So the angel continues to talk to the other ladies that are there. And he tells them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So the angels tells them to go, tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he's going to meet you in Galilee. The interesting thing is it takes him about two weeks to get to Galilee. I think Jesus is seen seven times prior to even getting to Galilee, as the angel says. Verse 8. So they departed, left the tomb with great fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshiped, and worshiped him. And he said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Once again, do not be afraid. There is something about fallen man seeing a pure, godly figure that brings out sheer terror in us. It just brings out fear like nothing else that we've ever encountered in this life. Zechariah happened whenever the angel spoke to him in the temple and told him that he was going to have a a child. Remember that? He was just all over himself, but the angel said, be not afraid. When the angel appeared to Mary and said, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. But before he said that, he said, peace be still, be not afraid, be not afraid. But there is a difference in the way these heavenly beings treat believers and unbelievers, and it's shown here and demonstrated here in this passage. Didn't say a word to the guards. It's all right. Pass out on your own. You are afraid to the point of passing out. There's no sympathy shown to those guards whatsoever. But to every believer, the first words always spoken is, don't be afraid. 
Be not afraid. That showed, so demonstrates the love of God. Because at that moment, we realized our sinfulness. We realize and understand that we don't belong in that presence. And yet he's telling us, don't be afraid because the one that came from that presence and went back to that presence took on our sins for us. We don't have to pay that debt. That's the beauty of that small, comforting phrase, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now I want us to look at the lie that confirms the truth. And in doing so, I want to set the stage and I want us to go backwards to Matthew chapter 27. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation. Okay, so we're going backwards a little bit. This was prior to Sunday. Actually, the next day was Saturday. The next day was the Sabbath. So the next day, after the day of preparation... The chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that the imposter said, or what the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. The irony of all this is that the twelve, the twelve that followed him, or the eleven at this point, that followed him every day for three years did not have a clue about what that meant. But these religious leaders that wanted everything to do with killing Jesus and doing away with Christianity, knew what perhaps could happen going forward. So they were concerned that something was going to happen. And as I said, this was on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, were breaking their own law with respect to the Sabbath. They weren't supposed to have these meetings on the Sabbath. But they go to Pilate and say, look, we're a little concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow. And so they ask, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, have your guard. you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. So they asked Pilate for soldiers to guard the tomb. Pilate gave them a group, don't know how many, multiple soldiers, to go and seal. The tomb is sealed with a Roman seal. Not just a Jewish seal, this is a Roman seal. No one dare break that seal. And it was sealed with this large stone. So this is the setting, and this is what's happened on Saturday before we jump into Sunday. We know that the guards were terrified, and actually they passed out from their fear. And so while they were going, while the ladies were going to tell the disciples, some of the guards went into the city to tell the chief priests all that had taken place. So remember, these were Roman soldiers. They were not Jewish soldiers. They answered to Pilate. They did not answer to Caiaphas or any of the Jewish leaders or the Sanhedrin. Yet they reported back to the chief priests. They went back to the chief priests and told them what had happened. 
And so this calls for an assembly. And when they, the chief priests and all the elders, when they assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. So we have an assembly, and the words taken counsel here are significant. Taken counsel is they actually passed a resolution by vote. They met. It would be like having a formal meeting. That's what happened. The soldiers come, told them what had happened. They called a formal meeting. They had a, a resolution that had three parts to it. The first part of the resolution is we see, we're going to pay the soldiers off. Now, there's a lot going on here, but first, they're going to pay the soldiers off. And, and this worked, right? We saw it work with Judas. They were very adept at paying people off to get what they wanted. That's how they got Judas to betray Christ, was to pay, and pay him off. And no doubt, it was probably a great deal more of money that they were paid, because the Roman leaders would have likely have executed these soldiers for doing this. So they meet, they pay him off, and then they have two more parts to the resolution. Tell people his disciples came by night, stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy, satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So I'm going to take the third part of the resolution next. I'm going to get them out of order because I want to spend some time on the second part. If it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So we're going to pay you off, and we're going to keep you out of trouble. Don't worry about it. If they realize that you fell asleep and something happened, no big deal, we'll keep Pilate from coming down on you. And you've got to understand, the Sanhedrin had a lot of control over Pilate. Actually, it was the Sanhedrin that enticed Pilate for crucifying Jesus in the first place. Pilate didn't want to do it. It wasn't his choice, and yet they threatened him, and they threatened his authority, and they threatened to go up the chain, and because of that threat, he actually had Christ crucified. So they carried a great deal of weight over Pilate, and that's what they were telling the soldiers here. If you guys get in trouble or the governor hears about this, don't worry about it. We're going to keep you all out of trouble. And then we're going to jump back here to Resolution 2. Resolution number two, or the second part of the resolution, was to have the soldiers perpetuate a lie that the disciples came by night and stole them away while they were sleeping. There's a whole lot of problems with this. First, as I said earlier, they were Roman soldiers. They were very, very good at what they did. It wasn't as if Barney Fife, I'm dating myself, aren't I? It wasn't as if Barney Fife was posted outside the tomb. Roman soldiers were posted outside the tomb. They knew their job and they knew how to do it well. And they weren't going to shirk their responsibility or their duties. Moreover, they guarded the tomb all night. You would say, well, they could have gone to sleep. No, it's not the way they guarded they would guard in two to three hour intervals and take shifts. So when one got tired, another one would jump in and they would go back and forth. There was no risk whatsoever of them going to sleep on their own. They were guarding the tomb the way soldiers were supposed to guard the tomb. 
In addition, the question I have, if they were asleep, how did they really know what happened to the body, right? There can be a lot going on in my house while I'm snoozing. I have no idea what's going on. But yet, this is the lie that they're told to perpetuate. Tell them you were asleep and the, soldier, or the disciples came and stole the body. Those of you that know me well know that I absolutely despise conspiracy theories. I despise them. And part of the reason I despise them and I don't believe them is because they are so difficult to keep. It is so hard for everybody to maintain a conspiracy theory. Why is that? Everybody likes to do this. Everybody likes to do this. Look here. You've got someone inside this meeting of a few people in the Sanhedrin telling what happened in that meeting because we're reading about it. Right? So someone, and this was a a beautiful conspiracy that they had, someone breached the protocol. Somebody spilled the beans. Somebody let them know, hey, this is really what happened whenever the soldiers came and, and talked about what happened down there at the tomb that day. It's very difficult to get a large-scale group of people not to talk. It's just, it's, just against our, it's against our nature. Because somehow this importance rises up within us, and we want to share it with somebody else. And then a lot of people want to share it, and then it's out there. It's out there. It's very difficult to get that to happen. And yet... Yet they want us to believe, or they want people to believe that 11, 11, fumbling, bumbling, cowardice men and several women were able to go to this tomb, overcome trained soldiers, armed, no doubt, roll back this stone, steal the body of Jesus that they didn't even know was supposed to be resurrected in three days, and that conspiracy not get out. I find that very hard to accept and hard to believe. Ladies and gentlemen, I would purport to you that that is unbelievable. These guys really weren't adept at doing anything. Especially at this time. They couldn't do much of anything well. They were scared. They scattered. They couldn't remember things. They they couldn't understand what was told to them. The best evidence, as I've said many times, for the actual resurrection of Jesus is the attitudes of these 11 disciples. Every one of them were severely punished and died because of Jesus. Every one of them. And they didn't do so in fear. They did so because they wanted to. They wanted to make that sacrifice. Jesus was worth that much to them. But if you look at the time leading up to his crucifixion, Peter denied him three times. 
They ran, they scattered, they hid, they were in the upper room. In fact, I would argue to you that the women had much more bravery in their body than the men did because the women were brave enough to go to the tomb. The, the, the guys were up there hiding, wringing their hands, worried about what was going to happen to them. Absolutely no debating the change that happened to them after they witnessed the risen Christ. Their leader had just been killed. They knew that they were likely next. They weren't going to expose themselves to anything else. Acts 5, we see Peter. Peter denied him three times, was running and hiding and scared of his own shadow. Peter, Acts 5, in the middle of the Sanhedrin, tells them, when faced with death, I'm sorry, I have to obey God and not man. He didn't care if they were going to kill him. It didn't matter anymore if they were going to kill him. He represented somebody that had seen something to make him believe. So the question then becomes, why in the world would those 11, Paul would make 12, why would all of those disciples die for something they knew to be a lie? That makes no sense whatsoever. People will die for a lot of things. I say nobody in their right mind will die for something you know is a lie. And in, in order for those disciples to die for Christ and to have stolen his body, they had to know that that was a lie. So you see how even the very best attempt at explaining away the, crucifix, or the resurrection of Jesus fails. It, it simply cannot withstand logical scrutiny. And as, a, as an aside, the saddest part of all this, when, when the soldiers went back to the Sanhedrin, they told them the truth. They told them exactly what had happened. And the Jews were waiting on a Messiah, right? I mean, this is their chance. They didn't care. They didn't care. They were more worried about their status, their comfort, and where they were in society than they were about eternal life. They had an opportunity, but yet they showed just how blind they really were. Matthew tells us that this lie actually caught on, and it was spread throughout the Jewish community. And he says it was spread to this very day. Matthew wrote the book of Matthew in 60, around 63 A.D. This happened in around 33 A.D. So that lie, as unbelievable as it is, continued on for at least 30 years. One of the early church fathers talked about the Jews continuing to propagate that lie in 100 A.D. And I would say that it's still around today as illogical and as unbelievable as it is. But the bottom line, the bottom line, and the fact remains, is there was an empty tomb. There was an empty tomb. If anybody wanted to disprove anything, find the body. Do you not know or believe or think about how big 
of a search went on for the body of Christ? How many places did the Jews look? Under every rock and crevice and everywhere around, they were looking for Jesus because that would end it. That is the one thing that would end it. But he was never found. And he will never be found. Because he is at the right hand of the Father. Praying for us believers. For all our eternities. The tomb was empty because he rose from the grave. And we see the Gospels talking about He actually made himself known to over 500 people during that 40-day period that he stayed on the earth. Let's circle back because I promised you I would. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, hopefully you've gained some sort of evidence, logical evidence, not irrational, thoughtless ideas that make no sense as to God raising him from the dead. We can come back to the first part of the two prerequisites to eternal life. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you just have to say, Jesus is Lord, and I'm done. There's more that is attached to that. It has to come from a heart-filled knowledge of who Jesus is. Is he truly Lord? And if he truly is, it means you're not. It's an understanding that this person is full of sin. That no matter how hard I try, I cannot get to heaven. Every attempt I make is foiled. Because no matter how pure I try to make my heart, it just can't be. I can do a gesture, and I can want it to be for good, but there's some selfish thought that comes up in my mind that steals that. That likes to pat myself on the back for everything good that I do. That's who we are. And when we acknowledge that, we come to the reality that we can't save ourselves. And so with that, we have to trust that someone else lived a much better life than us. That someone else lived a perfect life. The life that we failed at. And is when we trust in Him and what He's done for us. And we submit our will to His. That's when we can say that Jesus is Lord. That's when we repent of our sins. We ask Him to help us to live the life that He desires for us, not the life that our fallen nature desires for us to live. That's really, truly what it means to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. And when we put those two together, eternity happens. Joy, no pain. Everything that our minds can't wrap around is waiting for us in eternity. The beauty, the radiance of God, that radiance that scared the soldiers, the disciples, the the ladies at the tomb, we will be reflecting that radiance. 
the pain that I'm having in my back as I stand here right now will no longer be. The flapping tongues that we all have that so cause damage to each other and to ourselves will not be glory forever. That's eternity. So I encourage you this morning, if you don't know Him, if you're not able to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, now is the time. Now is that moment. Because we don't know that we'll get another. Every breath that I take, every beat that my heart makes, is sustained by Jesus and given to me by Jesus. And there's only so many. And without confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart, that will stop. And there will be a time when that's too late. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for all of the gospel writers, Lord, as they explain this glorious resurrection. And Father, I know that sometimes it can be difficult for us to understand the miraculous. But we just pray, Lord, that you help us to logically make sense of this in our minds. To know that you spoke the heavens and earth into existence, and we have no idea how that happened. We just know that it happened. And we know that it is that same power that raised Jesus from the dead so that we can be eternally with you. And Father, it's our prayer this morning that if there's someone in this building that doesn't know you, that they recognize that our being good isn't good enough, that we fail miserably at being perfect. You, knowing this, provided a way. And that way was Jesus. As He told us, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to you but through Him. And if anyone in here doesn't know that, that they will know that this morning, and they will make the commitment in their hearts to proclaim you as Lord. And we pray that you give them that belief in their heart that you raise Jesus from the dead so that they may enter into eternal life. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I actually added a praise song at the end, so let's all rise and join together and sing Amazing Love.